Chapter 4 of The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chapter 4 The End of the Tether Revolving these thoughts, he strolled on near the railings of the quay, broad-chested, without a stoop, as though his big shoulders had never felt the burden of the loads that must be carried between the cradle and the grave. No single betraying fold or line of care disfigured the reposeful modelling of his face. It was full and untanned, and the upper part emerged massively quiet out of the downward flow of silvery hair, with the striking delicacy of its clear complexion and the powerful width of the forehead. The first cast of his glance fell on you candid and swift like a boy's, but because of the ragged, snowy thatch of the eyebrows, the affability of his attention acquired the characteristic of a dark and searching scrutiny. With age he had put on flesh a little, had increased his girth like an old tree, presenting no symptom of decay, and even the opulent, lustrous ripple of white hairs upon his chest seemed an attribute of unquenchable vitality and vigour. Once rather proud of his great bodily strength and even of his personal appearance, conscious of his worth and firm in his rectitude, there had remained to him, like the heritage of departed prosperity, the tranquil bearing of a man who had proved himself fit in every sort of way for the life of his choice. He strode on squarely under the projecting brim of an ancient Panama hat. It had a low crown, a crease through its whole diameter, a narrow black ribbon, Imperishable and a little discoloured, this headgear made it easy to pick him out from afar on thronged wharves and in the busy streets. He had never adopted the comparatively modern fashion of pipe-clayed cork helmets. He disliked the form, and he hoped he could manage to keep a cool head to the end of his life without all these contrivances for hygienic ventilation. His hair was cropped close, his linen always of immaculate whiteness, a suit of thin grey flannel, worn threadbare but scrupulously brushed, floated about his burly limbs, adding to his bulk by the looseness of its cut. The years had mellowed the good-humoured, imperturbable audacity of his prime into a temper carelessly serene, and the leisurely tapping of his iron-shod stick accompanied his footfalls with a self-confident sound on the flagstones. It was impossible to connect such a fine presence and this unruffled aspect with the belittling troubles of poverty. The man's whole existence appeared to pass before you, facile and large, in the freedom of means as ample as the clothing of his body. The irrational dread of having to break into his five hundred pounds for personal expenses in the hotel disturbed the steady poise of his mind. There was no time to lose. The bill was running up. He nourished the hope that this five hundred would perhaps be the means, if everything else failed, of obtaining some work which, keeping his body and soul together, not a matter of great outlay, would enable him to be of use to his daughter. To his mind it was her own money which he employed, as it were, in backing her father and solely for her benefit. Once at work he would help her with the greater part of his earnings. He was good for many years yet, and this boarding-house business, he argued to himself, whatever the prospects, could not be much of a gold-mine from the first start. But what work? 
He was ready to lay hold of anything in an honest way so that it came quickly to his hand because the five hundred pounds must be preserved intact for eventual use. That was the great point. With the entire five hundred one felt a substance at one's back but it seemed to him that should he let it dwindle to four fifty or even four eighty all the efficiency would be gone out of the money as though there were some magic power in the round figure. But what sort of work? Confronted by that haunting question as by an uneasy ghost for whom he had no exorcising formula, Captain Wally stopped short on the apex of a small bridge spanning steeply the bed of a canalised creek with granite shores. Moored between the square blocks, a sea-going Malay prow floated half-hidden under the arch of masonry, with her spars lowered down, without a sound of life on board, and covered from stem to stern with a ridge of palm-leaf mats, he had left behind him the overheated pavements bordered by the stone frontages that, like the sheer face of cliffs, followed the sweep of the quays, and an unconfined spaciousness of orderly and sylvan aspect opened before him its wide plots of rolled grass like pieces of green carpet smoothly pegged out, its long range of trees lined up in colossal porticos of dark shafts roofed with a vault of branches. Some of these avenues ended at the sea. It was a terraced shore, and beyond, upon the level expanse, profound and glistening like the gaze of a dark blue eye, an oblique band of stippled purple lengthened itself indefinitely through the gap between a couple of verdant twin islets. The masts and spars of a few ships far away, hull down in the outer roads, sprang straight from the water in a fine maze of rosy lines pencilled on the clear shadow of the eastern board. Captain Wally gave them a long glance. The ship, once his own, was anchored out there. It was staggering to think that it was open to him no longer to take a boat at the jetty and get himself pulled off to her when the evening came. To no ship, perhaps never more. Before the sale was concluded, and till the purchase money had been paid, he had spent daily some time on board the fair maid. The money had been paid this very morning, and now, all at once, there was positively no ship that he could go on board of when he liked, no ship that would need his presence in order to do her work, to live. It seemed an incredible state of affairs, something too bizarre to last. And the sea was full of craft of all sorts. There was that prow lying so still, swathed in her shroud of sown palm leaves. She too had her indispensable man. They lived through each other, this Malay he had never seen, and this high-sterned thing of no size that seemed to be resting after a long journey. And of all the ships in sight, near and far, each was provided with a man, the man without whom the finest ship is a dead thing, a floating and purposeless log. After his glance at the roadstead he went on, since there was nothing to turn back for and the time must be got through somehow. The avenues of big trees ran straight over the esplanade, cutting each other at diverse angles, columnar below and luxuriant above. The interlaced boughs high up there seemed to slumber, not a leaf stirred overhead, and the reedy cast-iron lamp-posts in the middle of the road, gilt-like sceptres, diminished in a long perspective with their globes of white porcelain atop, resembling a barbarous decoration of ostriches' eggs displayed in a row. 
the flaming sky kindled a tiny crimson spark upon the glistening surface of each glassy shell. With his chin sunk a little, his hands behind his back, and the end of his stick marking the gravel with a faint wavering line at his heels, Captain Wally reflected that if a ship without a man was like a body without a soul, a sailor without a ship was of not much more account in this world than an aimless log adrift upon the sea. The log might be sound enough by itself, tough of fibre and hard to destroy, but what of that? And a sudden sense of irremediable idleness weighted his feet like a great fatigue. A succession of open carriages came bowling along the newly opened sea road. You could see across the wide grass plots the discs of vibration made by the spokes. The bright domes of the parasol swayed lightly outwards like full-blown blossoms on the rim of a vase, and the quiet sheet of dark blue water, crossed by a bar of purple, made a background for the spinning wheels and the high action of the horses, whilst the turbaned heads of the Indian servants, elevated above the line of the sea horizon, glided rapidly on the paler blue of the sky. In an open space near the little bridge, each turnout trotted smartly in a wide curve away from the sunset, then pulling up sharp entered the main alley in a long, slow-moving file with the great red stillness of the sky at the back. The trunks of mighty trees stood all touched with red on the same side. The air seemed aflame under the high foliage. The very ground under the hoofs of the horses was red. The wheels turned solemnly. One after another the sunshades drooped, folding their colours like gorgeous flowers, shutting their petals at the end of the day. In the whole half-mile of human beings no voice uttered a distinct word, only a faint thudding noise went on mingled with the slight jingling sounds, and the motionless heads and shoulders of men and women sitting in couples emerged stolidly above the lowered hoods, as if wooden. But one carriage and pair coming late did not join the line. It fled along in a noiseless roll, but on entering the avenue one of the dark bays snorted, arching his neck and shying against the steel-tipped pole. A flake of foam fell from the bit upon the point of a satiny shoulder, and the dusky face of the coachman leant forward at once over the hands, taking a fresh grip of the reins. It was a long, dark green landau, having a dignified and buoyant motion between the sharply curved sea springs and a sort of strictly official majesty in its supreme elegance. It seemed more roomy than is usual, its horses seemed slightly bigger, the appointments a shade more perfect, the servants perched somewhat higher on the box. The dresses of three women two young and pretty and one handsome, large, of mature age, seemed to fill completely the shallow body of the carriage. The fourth face was that of a man, heavy-lidded, distinguished and sallow, with a sombre, thick, iron-grey imperial and moustaches, which somehow had the air of solid appendages. His Excellency. The rapid motion of that one equipage made all the others appear utterly inferior, blighted and reduced to crawl painfully at a snail's pace. The landau distanced the whole file in a sort of sustained rush, the features of the occupant whirling out of sight left behind an impression of fixed stares and impassive vacancy, and after it had vanished in full flight as it were, notwithstanding the long line of vehicles hugging the curb at a walk, 
The whole lofty vista of the avenue seemed to lie open and emptied of life in the enlarged impression of an august solitude. Captain Wally had lifted his head to look, and his mind, disturbed in its meditation, turned with wonder, as men's minds will do, to matters of no importance. It struck him that it was to this port where he had just sold his last ship that he had come with the very first he had ever owned, and with his head full of a plan for opening a new trade with a distant part of the archipelago. The then governor had given him no end of encouragement. No excellency he, this Mr. Denham, this governor with his jacket off, a man who tended night and day, so to speak, the growing prosperity of the settlement with the self-forgetful devotion of a nurse for a child she loves, a lone bachelor who lived as in a camp with a few servants and his three dogs in what was called then the government bungalow, a low-roofed structure on the half-cleared slope of a hill with a new flagstaff in front and a police orderly on the veranda. He remembered toiling up that hill under the heavy sun for his audience, the unfurnished aspect of the cool shaded room, the long table covered at one end with piles of papers and with two guns, a brass telescope, a small bottle of oil with a feather stuck in the neck at the other, and the flattering attention given to him by the man in power. It was an undertaking full of risk he had come to expound, but a twenty minutes' talk in the government bungalow on the hill had made it go smoothly from the start. And as he was retiring, Mr. Denham, already seated before the papers, called out after him, Next month the Dido starts for a cruise that way, and I shall request her captain officially to give you a look in and see how you get on. The Dido was one of the smart frigates on the China station, and five and thirty years make a big slice of time. Five and thirty years ago an enterprise like this had for the colony enough importance to be looked after by a Queen's ship, a big slice of time. Individuals were of some account then, men like himself, men too like poor Evans, for instance, with his red face, his coal-black whiskers and his restless eyes, who had set up the first patent slip for repairing small ships on the edge of the forest in a lonely bay three miles up the coast. Mr. Denham had encouraged that enterprise too, and yet somehow poor Evans had ended up by dying at home, deucedly hard up. His son, they said, was squeezing oil out of coconuts for a living on some godforsaken islet of the Indian Ocean, but it was from that patent slip in a lonely wooded bay that had sprung the workshops of the Consolidated Docks Company, with its three graving basins carved out of solid rock, its wharves, its jetties, its electric light plant, its steam powerhouses, with its gigantic sheer legs fit to lift the heaviest weight ever carried afloat, and whose head could be seen like the top of a queer white monument peeping over bushy points of land and sandy promontories as you approached the new harbour from the west. There had been a time when men counted. There were not so many carriages in the colony then, though Mr. Denham, he fancied, had a buggy. And Captain Wally seemed to be swept out of the great avenue by the swirl of a mental backwash. He remembered muddy shores, a harbour without keys, the one solitary wooden pier, but that was a public work, jutting out crookedly, the first coal sheds erected on Monkey Point that caught fire mysteriously and smouldered for days so that amazed ships came into a roadstead full of sulphurous smoke and the sun hung blood-red at midday. He remembered the things, the faces, and something more besides, 
like the faint flavour of a cup quaffed to the bottom, like a subtle sparkle of the air that was not to be found in the atmosphere of today. In this evocation, swift and full of detail, like a flash of magnesium light into the niches of a dark memorial hall, Captain Wally contemplated things once important, the efforts of small men, the growth of a great place, but now robbed of all consequence by the greatness of accomplished facts, by hopes greater still. And they gave him for a moment such an almost physical grip upon time, such a comprehension of our unchangeable feelings, that he stopped short, struck the ground with his stick, and ejaculated mentally, What the devil am I doing here? He seemed lost in a sort of surprise, but he heard his name called out in wheezy tones, once, twice, and turned on his heels slowly. He beheld then, waddling towards him, autocratically, a man of an old-fashioned and gouty aspect, with hair as white as his own, but with shaved florid cheeks, wearing a necktie, almost a neckcloth, whose stiff ends projected far beyond his chin, with round legs, round arms, a round body, a round face, generally producing the effect of his short figure having been distended by means of an air-pump as much as the seams of his clothing would stand. This was the master attendant of the port. A master attendant is a superior sort of harbour-master, a person out in the east of some consequence in his sphere, a government official, a magistrate for the waters of the port, and possessed of vast but ill-defined disciplinary authority over seamen of all classes. This particular master attendant was reported to consider it miserably inadequate on the ground that it did not include the power of life and death. This was a jocular exaggeration. Captain Elliot was fairly satisfied with his position and nursed no inconsiderable sense of such power as he had. His conceited and tyrannical disposition did not allow him to let it to dwindle in his hands for want of use. The uproarious, choleric frankness of his comments on people's character and conduct caused him to be feared at bottom, though in conversation many pretended not to mind him in the least, others would only smile sourly at the mention of his name, and there were even some who dared to pronounce him a meddlesome old ruffian. But for almost all of them, one of Captain Elliot's outbreaks was nearly as distasteful to face as a chance of annihilation. End of chapter 4